You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Welcome. Welcome to Black Hollywood Live, where we keep you up to date with the latest in both legal news and Hollywood. I am your host, Rawa Gebra'ab, and I am joined by my lovely co-host, Lonnie Coombs. Hey, Lonnie. Hey, great to be here. Oh, great to have you, and uh, great to work with you again. Uh, uh, let's go ahead and get right to it. Yes. Uh, we'll start with our case of the week, the Oscar Pistorius uh, trial. It's in its fourth week now. Mm-hmm. And um, Oscar Pistorius, as many of you will recall, famous South African sprinter, uh, famous on, not only in South Africa, internationally, mm-hmm. uh, particularly because he is a double amputee. His story has inspired so many, but he has now been accused and is on trial for murdering his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. Um, and the prosecution has rested. Mm-hmm. And the defense was actually <clears throat> supposed to open today, yeah. but um, it was delayed for a week because because one of the judge's assessors, uh, which is essentially one of the judge's, uh, I don't want to say assistant, but one of the people that assists the judge with coming to a decision because of the um, non-jury trial system in, in South Africa, is sick. So uh, the trial or the defense is going to start next Friday mm-hmm. and um, or Monday, whatever April 7th is. And uh, Pistorius' attorney says it's very likely that he is going to testify uh, all they have, all that we have, uh, based off of um, Oscar's side of the story, is an affidavit that he uh, prepared and signed, having uh, to, which gave his side of the story essentially at his bail hearing. Mm-hmm. So that's all we have. We have no testimony of of, of, of Oscar to date, and um, th- there's no question that he shot Reba Steenkamp. Mm-hmm. But uh, at this point, it's likely that the, de- the, de- the defense is uh, going to claim a putative. A putative private defense. And a putative private defense, from what I'm reading, is it's where an accused is found to have genuinely believed that his life was in danger and that he was using reasonable means to avert an attack on himself or his property. And and, and what we're hearing is that based on this defense, he may escape conviction for murder on the grounds that he lacked the requisite intent to kill. Um, but even if this succeeds, he still, uh, Pistorius still could be convicted of culpable homicide, uh, if the state can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a reasonable person in Pistorius' circumstances, which also include the fact that he had, had no legs, he, you know, he doesn't have legs, he has a prosthetics, uh, could have foreseen the death of another person based on his actions. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna toss this to you, Lonnie, because mm-hmm. you have been covering this case, <clears throat> you know the ins and outs. I mean, what can we expect from the defense and and in terms of intent how are they going to prove that that Pistorius didn't have any well it's an interesting legal mm-hmm. um situation in this case there's essentially two ways that the um prosecution can get a conviction here one is the 
first-degree premeditated murder, which is what they've charged here, saying that he knew that Reva Stephen Camp was in the bathroom, that they'd gotten into a fight that night, that they were in an argument, that things had been, there'd been yelling and screaming going on prior, that she ran into the bathroom to try and get away from him, that he was angry, he got his gun, and in rage, shot through that door, intending to kill her. That's the premeditated first-degree murder, and that there was enough time for him to think about it, premeditate it, before he shot. Without the premeditation still, the rage shooting, without any, you know, premeditation shooting through that, still a murder charge. Um, now, he is coming up with a very different scenario, which is a very common scenario in South Africa, we know, because of the um, home burglaries and invasions and violence right. there, and that is that he believed it was an intruder there behind the door, and he was actually shooting through the door to protect himself and Riva, a self-defense claim. Okay, that gets it down to murder. But what's interesting is in South Africa, if you claim that here in Texas or in a lot of the states here in America, <laughs> yeah. do you think there's an intruder in your house? You get to shoot mm-hmm. and you can kill them. If you believe that they're there to try and cause you great bodily injury or hurt you, you get to shoot them and you're not going to be prosecuted because they're in your home. They've invaded your private place. They're in Africa it's not the same, right. despite the fact that they have a much higher rate of um, home invasions and violence and murders there. They cannot just shoot through the door, believing reasonably there's somebody on the other side of the door, even though you think you're defending yourself and defending your loved ones there in the home. If you reasonably believe, or he should have reasonably believed, that there was somebody behind the door and that what he was going to do could have killed him, that's culpable homicide. Regardless of who it is behind the door, even if it's an intruder, even if it's somebody who might have come out and tried to kill him, that is culpable homicide. And they've had cases like this in the past in South Africa. There's another uh, fairly uh, famous case there where a, a kind of a noteworthy person thought there was an intruder in his home. He fired his gun and it ended up being his daughter and he killed his daughter. And that person was convicted of culpable homicide. But the judge said, this was such a horrible tragedy for you. I'm not sending you to prison. So he got the culpable homicide conviction, but there was no jail time on it. I mean, do you think that there could be a similar, I mean, all the other facts aside, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, Oscar Pistorius lost his girlfriend and according mm-hmm. to him, the love of his life, he's devastated. Yeah. I mean, could there be, I mean, a, a daughter doesn't necessarily equate girlfriend, but, no, could, but could there uh, be a similar yeah, type oh, of absolutely. outcome? And, and in the culpable homicide, it is within the judge's discretion as far as the sentencing. So they can get anything from probation up to, you know, I, I think it's 15 years mm-hmm. um, in prison. So... And there's a lot of leeway there for the judge. Um, and I would think if the judge believes that scenario, that there would be some leniency in the sentencing if, there, if the judge did find him guilty of the culpable homicide. The question is, will she, the judge, believe this story that he really believed Reva was in the bed and not behind the door? When there's right. evidence that, you know, he went by the bed as he went to the bathroom and people are saying, why wouldn't he know? Why wouldn't he check on her first before he pulls out a gun and starts firing? Right. And the previous girlfriend said, yeah, well, I was in bed with him a couple of times. And he woke up thinking somebody was in the house. And the first thing he did was he turned to me and said, Shh, do you hear something? You know, be careful. Do you hear something? Which is what normally people do mm-hmm. when you think you hear somebody. You know, you go, oh, do you, do you hear what I hear? I think there's somebody in the house. Look over, see if your partner's in the right. bed with you. Exactly. <laughs> right. Instead of just grab your gun first and start firing. So it'll be interesting to see where the judge comes down on the on his state of mind. And that's why he has to take the stand here. He has to be able to get up and present to her enough emotion and details for her to be able to get into his mind 
and feel the vulnerability that he's describing, the fear that he's describing, and so she can understand why what he did was totally reasonable and logical and the right course of action for him to take that night. There are a lot of facts that this guy has to overcome, Mm -hmm. and I am particularly curious about uh, some of the questions that he will face on cross-examination, particularly with his... uh, his relationship with Reva, mm-hmm. uh, there, uh, there have been reports in the news that they had a, a somewhat volatile relationship and text well. messages <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and the like. And, and also the fact that, uh, that he has had, uh, repu- I don't know if you would call it a reputation, but there are incidents that have also been reported, uh, maybe where he shot a gun, uh, through the sunroof of a car after getting into it with a cop or, um, it, leaving his gun at, in a restaurant and then having his, asking his friend to take the rap for it. I mean, there are things that go to his trustworthiness. There, there are, there are questions about, uh, again, the relationship because of the text messages. Uh, one of the text messages I recall Reva sending uh, that we have been privy to, her stating, you know, sometimes I'm scared of you. Mm-hmm. And um, I, those are a couple of the questions that I think will be asked. But, I mean, other than those, and, and of course, feel free to, to you know, to mm-hmm. elaborate on that. What other questions do you think that um, that the judges want going to want to have well, answers to. there's going to be questions to him and then also to the defense experts. There's a lot of ballistics and, um, you know, the the thing about uh, Reva, um, the coroner said that she had contents in her stomach that showed that she had eaten at one, 1 o'clock in the morning, which is not what Oscar said. Oscar said they went to bed at 10 o'clock at night and were asleep during that time. So being up at 1 o'clock goes more to the um, argument the prosecution has that they'd been, they were up arguing at the time of the mm-hmm. shooting. So those questions will be going to Oscar, but then they'll also be going to the experts. I think that the text messages, um, you know, there were over 1,700 messages that they pulled up off of these phones. Four of them were argumentative. Uh, Four of them. And those are the ones were being from, widely were the reported. Ones that, that's why I wanted to say that those are the ones that the media picked up on. Right. And, you know, and, but the, the interesting thing about those four is how much detail Reva went into describing his behavior, which anyone who is familiar with an abusive relationship, whether it be verbally abusive or otherwise, or a controlling relationship, will recognize some of the red flags there. He didn't like the way she was chewing. He didn't like it when she touched his neck, you know, trying to, I mean, she would sound like she was really walking on eggshells there right. a lot of times because he was so controlling. So while that was only a small part of the text messages, it seems like there was quite a level of, of control um, on his part and a, and a hair trigger anger towards her. Um, so those things can be used, but you have to kind of balance it over a three-month period of time in a relationship, four text messages out of 1,700, you know, how really, um, you know, volatile it was the relationship. And apparently it was also a very loving, loving relationship. Um so there, there's things that work in Oscar's favor. There's things that, that don't. But they're going to the prior uh, two gun shooting incidents that you talked about. Those right. come up because they're charged. So he will be asked about them. He's already said he denies the shooting through the sunroof. He says that never happened. And as far as the gun in the restaurant, when he says when the um, friend handed him the gun, he didn't know that it was ready to fire. And so it was just kind of a mistake. It was a you know it's kind of a messy handling of the gun. Um, so those things he'll obviously talk about. His defense attorney attorney is extremely capable and will have him prepared now that he has a whole nother week to prepare. He will be uh, ready to go. I think it'll be very dramatic. Talk he's, about good fortune. Yeah. yeah. He's been very emotional in the courtroom, mm-hmm. um, throwing up and crying. I think we'll see some of that on the stand, but I think that his 
his uh, attorney is going to tell him to not overdo it right. um, because you don't want to look like you're trying to manipulate, you know, the judge's emotions. So it's going to be uh, fascinating. Um, and they do believe he will be the first witness on the stand. In South Africa, it's interesting. Here, when a defendant testifies, they're usually the last witness that the defense puts on. But in right. South Africa, apparently, if the defendant decides to testify and they don't testify first in their case, then um, the the judge may say, oh, he was waiting until the end of his case so he could hear all the other witnesses and tailor his testimony to the other witnesses. So actually, they prefer that they testify first. So that's why everyone was assuming that he was going to be the first one on the stand. And when they resume on April 7th, he will be the first one most likely on the stand. So we're going to be looking forward to that, and we'll definitely be talking about it that week when yeah, it comes back We will in. see how this turns out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now let's turn to On the Docket. Um, a few interesting cases that came up this week. And the first one is a case that I just find so fascinating. I, I feel for this woman. Um, I saw her on, on the news. Her name is Mary Virginia Jones. She's a 74-year-old woman, a mother, a grandmother, a church member. Um, she's been in prison for the last 32 years. for murder, uh, a killing that occurred back in 1981. And um, she got a life sentence uh, from that. And so she was supposed to stay in prison until she died, but she walked out a free woman this week. And um, essentially the the case itself was kind of fascinating when you hear the facts of the case. Um, Before her arrest back in 1981, she was a a full-time teacher's aide at LA Unified School District. She met this man, Willis, in a homeless shelter and invited him to come stay in her home. They ended up having some type of relationship uh, that went bad quickly. Um, A week prior to the murder, um, he threatened uh, her and her daughter at gunpoint threatened to kill them. Um, and then the day of the murder, he threatened her at gunpoint to be his getaway driver as they drove and met some drug dealers. There ended up being a shootout. Both drug dealers got shot and one of them died. And it was Willis shooting them, obviously. And after the shooting, uh, Jones, uh, Mary Jones, jumped out of the car, ran down the street to get away from sh- assuming he was going to shoot her too, but he didn't. She went and hid with friends until the police came after her, arrested her. They both went to trial and they were both convicted. Um, when I hear those facts, I think, wow, I'm surprised yeah. they got a conviction. But somehow they got her out. And usually after a conviction for murder, it's very hard to get someone out of prison. So what exactly happened in the trial and how did they actually get her out of, out of prison at this point? Uh, well... And I've been reading up on this story because it's, it's made big waves in Los Angeles. Yeah. But it's also really made uh, national news. And 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 what what happened in trial? And she, she went to trial in 1981. Right. And at the time, uh, there there was not evidence that was permitted uh, regarding expert testimony on the effects of intimate partner ba- uh, battering, which is uh, which was formerly referred to as battered women's syndrome. Right. And I remember because I was prosecuting cases in the late 80s, early 90s. And when I first started prosecuting, we couldn't bring on battered women's syndrome. Mm-hmm. Now you hear about it all the time. But right. we were not allowed to put that on a trial. So when you had a situation like this, a woman with a with a very controlling boyfriend, you know, you didn't get to put that on. Just out of luck. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and and the laws have changed since, mm-hmm. obviously, and like you just said, and so uh, the University of Southern California's law school uh, has a post-conviction justice project where law students uh, work to to try to overturn certain convictions that they deem unjust, or where where laws have changed since, or where maybe the person didn't get a fair trial, and 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 mind you, Mary Jones, she she had four trials. 
And, and, and so this wasn't just an open and shut case, and she fought. And, um, and, and they, they took on the case several years ago, and, um, and they pushed and they pushed and they pushed. These students worked hard. I mean, students graduated, new students came on. It, it was not a, a easy, nor was it a quick process. And um, following their, their work, the culmination of their work, the L.A. District Attorney's Office conducted uh, an independent investigation of uh, Jones' claims and, and agreed to set aside her conviction uh, in exchange for a no-contest plea uh, and of uh, voluntary manslaughter mm-hmm. and uh, time served sentence. So uh, I would say 35 years on a voluntary manslaughter. Yeah, definitely, definitely <laughs> yeah, some time huge, served. Yeah. Um, yeah, we usually ha- hear of these cases of, of intimate partner battering, battered woman's formerly, you know, referred to as battered woman syndrome, where a woman uh, kills her kills her uh, husband or, abusive or her boyfriend, partner, abusive right. part- partner. Yes. So um, you don't nec- you don't really hear of it that often when it comes to uh, maybe the partner mm-hmm. uh, forcing a woman to commit uh, a crime like this. So um, is this is this also is this something that is just new to the public or is it kind of not that common? In, in- it's not that common. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, the way that the facts of the case were, I don't even know if you really needed the battered women syndrome or the intimate partner syndrome to show that it looks like she was forced into this against her will. Um, but And that's why it is so difficult to overturn these convictions, and that's why it took years to do this. Um, But I I so um, admire and laud the efforts of these different kinds of um, Innocence Projects groups who go around and do this because people like uh, Mary Jones, it just does not seem fair at all that she was in prison for 35 years for uh, what happened um, back in 1981. So that's, that, I think that's a, 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 a hard-fought win. Great but, work, USC yeah. law. Yeah, exactly. Great work. Okay, uh, Charlotte Mayor Patrick Cannon. <laughs> he's only been in office less than six <laughs> months, and he's already resigning, oh. looking for a new job, um, because he was arrested and accused of taking more than $480,000, I believe, um, in cash, airline tickets, hotel room, the use of a luxury apartment, um, fr- bribes, essentially, um, from undercover FBI agents <laughs> who are posing as businessmen who wanted to do work. Here we go um, again. Yeah, yeah. In, in North Carolina. <laughs> this isn't new. Yeah. So, and it's interesting when you're doing this, if you're going to be doing this, I think you would try to be really careful that the people you were, um, bribing or being bribed by or not undercover FBI agents. Um, so, and, and one of the interesting parts of this is that part of the allegations against Cannon was there was some type of scheme in this collection of bribes to be used to for a feminine hygiene product. I mean, right there, I think people who are looking at this are going to raise their eyebrows and say, what, what exactly is going on here? So, um, I sure did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what was it that, that tipped off the FBI uh, agents and, and what did they allege he was doing? Oh, man. There are so many things that tipped them off. I mean, this guy had only been, and, and I laughed earlier, not because it's funny, but because, I mean, particularly with regard to this feminine hygiene scheme, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Who, I, I have to say, some some of these politicians who get caught up are getting more and more creative. Again, this is alleged, so we don't, we don't have, <laughs> right, right, right. you know, we're, uh, we're still no waiting to see. Yet. Right, we're still mm-hmm. waiting to see how this plays out. But um, he was charged with, um, with, theft and bribery uh, concerning programs receiving federal funds and wire fraud and extortion under color of official right, which is uh, his official right being the fact that he was mayor mm-hmm. of Charlotte, North Carolina, largest city in North Carolina. And um, yes, yeah, so this affidavit that was filed in support of the complaint 
not to get back to hip feminine hygiene, but here we are again, uh, <laughs> by, by a F- FBI special agent, it showed that one of the allegations was that he, he used the scheme to collect bribes, uh, using this purported feminine hygiene product that he was pushing. I mean, there are no bank filings, no corporate filings. Uh, the, 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 the mysterious feminine hygiene product was referred to, um, as hers. I, I don't know for what. <laughs> well, I, that's an appropriate I, name. I, I know, exactly. <laughs> I don't, I don't know for what, but, um, these undercover FBI agents were posing as business people who were investing in, in certain schemes that uh, Cannon was putting forward. And um, apparently 12500 of that amount was given to Cannon as a loan to help him start selling these feminine uh, products. And uh, on that alone, I am... Um, <laughs> Just, uh, just shaking my head. But he resigned. He resigned um, immediately, same day. Um, this just happened on Wednesday, mm-hmm. and uh, I would be very curious to get your thoughts on on resignation uh, after charges like this. Is it an indicator of guilt? Well, all the time. Where, where do you stand on this? Usually people hang in there a little bit longer to fight it. But it sounds like this had been going on for quite a while. And right. this investigation was not just while he was mayor. But he's been in public service um, ever since 1993. At the age of 26, he was the first elected to the council, becoming the youngest council member in the city's history. So he has had this um, this career. in, right. in um, So you kind of assume that the bribery has been going on for quite a while. He's honed his skills. But it's, you know, it's, it's sad because he also um, had a longtime radio show hosting gig and he's the founder of Easy Parking. So he obviously has other um, avenues of income. And yet, for some reason, when people get into that, those positions of power, especially, you know, politics, they uh, just they want to keep grabbing more and more. And it just seems like easy money. People want to throw money at them. And so they, um, you know, go for it. He's facing up to uh, 50 years in prison and more than a million dollars in fines. I mean, it's... It's a sad way to, to go out. But the fact that he resigned so quickly, um, my guess would be that he just wants to cut a deal quickly. And right. uh, one of the things that would probably get the prosecutors to come down a little bit is that he's not trying to continue um, serving in that capability, in that capacity where he could continue to, to take more bribes. So <clears throat> that that's what it would indicate to me. Yes, I'm sure we'll hear how this plays out um, yeah. in the coming days and weeks. Yeah. Well, one more person who has uh, sadly thrown away a, a very promising future is um, an, an ex-NFL star, Darren Sharper, who uh, it seems like every time you open up the newspaper or turn on the TV uh, or go on the Internet, <laughs> you hear another state is coming after him for charges. And these are very serious charges of uh, raping and drugging women. Um, and we're up to a number of different states now who are alleging that he's essentially followed kind of the same pattern um, over and over again with different women. Uh, and the states are starting to file charges and go after him. And right now he's in L.A. Um, so tell us about some of the, the charges that are being alleged against him. So um, the reason this story is making news again this week is because an L.A. judge on Monday ordered that he remain in jail without bail mm-hmm. and um, amid these ongoing sexual assault investigations in five different states. Well, I have to tell you, mm-hmm. the, the audacity of his, parent, his, his parents, his attorneys to come in and say he should be released on bail. I, I mean, the chutzpah of that, I cannot believe that the judge did not laugh them out of the courtroom. I mean, they've got, he's got all of these charges, very Absolutely. serious charges, mm-hmm. and then he's got them in all these other states. The last thing the judge is going to do is let him out of custody. Right. And he'd already been released. So initially, charges were brought against him in Arizona. He was released uh, on $1 million bail. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then he was taken into custody in Los Angeles uh, in, on 
February 27th, I believe, uh, because uh, New Orleans police issued an arrest warrant for him in connection with two alleged rapes there. Right. And so since then, Sharper's been indicted by an Arizona grand jury on two counts of sexual assault and three counts of administering dangerous drugs. Apparently, you know, this is this essentially he's being accused of date rape mm-hmm. and in um, and. The charges are so disturbing, uh, and it won't go into too much detail, but essentially he's accused of drugging and sexually assaulting at least eight women in L.A., New Orleans, Las Vegas, Arizona. Um, a ninth woman has accused him of sexual battery in Florida. So, um, Well, and essentially what they're saying is the same thing over and over again. They meet right. him at a nightclub. They're, you know, with him. They agree to go back to a hotel room or whatever with him. They're drinking, and then all of a sudden they don't feel good. They pass out. Then they wake up, and they, for whatever reason, we don't know the details, but they believe they've been sexually assaulted. Right. And it's, it's the same story over and over again by different women in different states. Right. So he's here. He's stuck in jail in L.A. I mean, by his own, by his alleged own doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and right now, we've got these different uh, jurisdictions fighting over him. Arizona wants to extradite him, bring right. him back. L.A. wants to try him first before he goes back to Arizona. So in your experience, I'd be curious to hear how uh, when there are, when there is a person that has been charged with this type of case uh, in, in several states. in several states, several yeah. jurisdictions. I mean, who gets first dibs? How do, how do you work this yeah, out? Yeah, usually the prosecutors in all of the states will kind of get together, hopefully on a big conference call or something, and discuss the cases and mm-hmm. decide, okay, who has the strongest case? Start where the strongest case is. And I believe right now they've agreed, and it, Arizona clarified and said, we're preparing extradition papers, but we're not going to file them mm-hmm. until L.A. finishes their case. Right. We want them to go ahead and prosecute them first, um, go through their trial, then we'll extradite them to Arizona. And you, they kind of just line them up, and at some point, you know, they'll look at the strength of the case and also the resources of the um, the prosecuting agency. Um, start in L.A. Sounds like he'll go to Arizona next. And at some point, if he gets convictions in every place, at some point, his attorney might just say, "Look, let's just go ahead and do it. Try and do a plea bargain on the other ones instead of going through every trial in every state and get moved around." He may also want to. He might. There might be a state that he prefers to be if assuming assuming he gets convicted and he's going to be doing jail time. There might be. A state that he would prefer to be in custody in, mm-hmm. so his attorney could maybe uh, negotiate that out too, in, in exchange for some, you know, pleas to some of the other um, trials. So it's all kind of negotiating between the prosecutors and then the defense attorney negotiating to see, you know, what deals he can get. And that's all assuming that he's, you know, convicted. Mm-hmm. But they have to go to trial first and get, you know, usually a, a conviction in the first trial, and then it kind of snowballs from there. It's a sad story, and we'll be watching yeah. and uh, and continuing to report back. Uh, our last segment for today, <laughs> tipping the scales. We've got a little opinion piece we're uh, we're going to talk about and. Uh, uh, bringing back a, a character from the past or you know, a character that I think many would I wish, wish would stay in the in past. The past. <laughs> um, so in, in an, a headline news opinion piece written by uh, Jason Johnson, who's an HLN contributor mm-hmm. and a professor of political science at Hiram College in Hiram, Ohio, uh, he makes the case that George Zimmerman uh, is in a sense a celebrity, which you know, I, I think that most people would agree, even begrudgingly, um, but that he should own his newly found fame instead of, um, as an innocent man would, instead of running from it as a, as a guilty man would. And um, uh, there are there are a few sides here. Uh, his his argument is that. Uh, Zimmerman should be on national tours. He should be educating the nation about the importance of gun safety. He should be speaking out against President Obama's, uh, Barack Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative. I mean, every 
time we turn on television, uh, Johnson thinks we should be seeing Zimmerman testifying in front of Congress on the importance of keeping stand your ground laws. I mean, this this guy should be out here, according to uh, Mr. Johnson. He should be out here acting innocent and 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 not doing what he's doing now. Um, and and. He has not kept a low profile since he his uh, his con he was he was uh, not found guilty of he was um, yeah he was acquitted of uh, killing Trayvon Martin and uh, the 17, 17 year old teenager in uh, Florida and um, I mean he has other options other option right now being staying low mm-hmm. um, and, and and many think he should take Casey Anthony's lead um, what does he have to lose what does he have to gain uh, I mean when the Zimmerman verdict came down in July of 2013 uh, a lawyer who represented another famous Florida defendant Casey Anthony if you'll recall um, who uh, she was cleared of murdering her two-year-old daughter in, in, in 2011 he thought that she, Zimmerman was going to keep a low profile like his client that just hasn't been the case so you know we've got these two options here does he keep a low profile? Does he disappear? Does he try to, uh, as Johnson suggests, act like an innocent man and go out and, <laughs> and campaign? And you know, at this point, I don't know if it's if it's possible. I mean, well, no, it's not. Know. I mean, he's he's tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what he's tried to do. I mean, he's right. going to gun shows. He's you know giving signing autographs. Um, <clears throat> he's trying to keep this high profile. I think he has elevated himself in his mind to this person and a persona that people want to be around, that see him as a hero. I think those people are very few and far between. And even people who might have felt like, okay, the acquittal was just or it was the right thing to do, his behavior since the verdict has been um, very offensive to many people. You know, the allegations of spousal abuse, none of them were, um, you know, they're just allegations, but continually having more run-ins with the police and kind of showing this arrogant um approach to the police and kind of a manipulative um, behavior towards them every time he came in contact with the police. And then, uh, you know, these allegations by the different women in his life that he is being violent with them, that he's pulling guns on them, that he's um, being physically abusive. So he now has this persona, I think, very different from what he thinks, of being sort of a bully, a thug, um, and not being um, somebody who's going to stand up and say, I was protecting myself, you know, rightfully so. now it looks like he just, you know, attacks lots of different people. Um, and, and so I don't think he has any goodwill towards him where people would look at him as an upstanding citizen or an innocent person that they would want to hear from. I think he does need to lie low, but I don't think that's in his personality. I think he likes to be in the limelight. And so I think we'll continue to see things, you know. And, and now that he, if he reads this article, he's going to love that article and just think he, he needs to step up and do more gun shows. <laughs> I'm sure he will. And, you know, and, and I, I totally agree. And to piggyback off your point about this not being in his personality, I mean, I don't really know what he would do do for money. I, I mean, we see him selling his art on eBay. We see uh, there was a possible celebrity boxing match. Mm-hmm. And then I think because of the outrage, you know, because he would capitalize off of off of this murder um, by by getting in a boxing ring with people for money. I mean, people were just 
people were just outraged that it was canceled. But um, I, I think that he doesn't even necessarily have the option right now. I mean, what other options well, does he have? And that's the other thing. I mean, I think everyone should be able to somehow, you know, provide a living for themselves. And that, like Casey Anthony said, you know, I, I have to go undercover, essentially. I'm living off the kindness of people mm-hmm. because she can't go out and get a job. She's, she doesn't want to be in the public eye. And she knows as soon as she gets a job, there's going to be, you know. But I, I think she's smart. She's lying low for a number of years. I think it will right. die down to the point where if she just goes out and gets a job in some, you know, not a high profile um, position that I think she'll be able to do it. And I think that George Zimmerman would be able to do that as well if he just gave it some time and kind of let everything pass. And um, but not right now. I know. You don't think that he's become too notorious at this point? His oh, face you know is what? everywhere all but, the time. But everyone, you know, we, there's always somebody else down the road. There's always going to be True. another case. And it's amazing how, you know, if people just kind of lay low. There's celebrities out there who keep their private lives because they choose to do that. And I think that there's um, people who can, even George Zimmerman can, you know, time will pass and he'll be able to, if he stays out of trouble and he doesn't keep doing these things that bring attention to himself, um, um, or have any more run-ins with the law that, you know, at some point people just say, okay, he's got to make a living, leave him alone, let him go, you know, go to work. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, what are your thoughts on, uh, on his ability to keep a low profile? I know it's not well, in his personality, no. but do you think anytime soon there may be a change in that? No, I don't. I don't. And, it, it, you know, the, his attorneys apparently, I mean, you can kind of tell by the way they've pulled back from him that they don't really have much control over him either. I don't know that they had much control over him during the trial. Um, I don't think he really listens to anyone. So he, I don't think he's going to be taking advice from anyone. Would you foresee an O.J. Simpson type situation where, you know, you see O.J. Simpson, he was acquitted of the murder of his mm-hmm. wife and uh, Ron Goldman uh, back in 19, I think in 1995 it was. And, um, and then he was taken down and arrested uh, many, many, many mm-hmm. years later in, a Las, in Las Vegas yeah. um, for completely unrelated charges. Yeah. Do, you think, do you think that he may push too far? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he almost did already a number right. of times when, you know, these allegations, they fell apart. But I'll tell you, I mean, he, he's had more run-ins than, you know, the average Joe does, you know, Man. with uh, the police. So he's going to, you know, for his own sake, I would say it, it would be smart of him to, you know, Lilo, but we'll see if he can do it. We will. Anyways, that is our show for this week. We have enjoyed our time with you, and we love talking about these legal cases. Hopefully, you'll join us next week. But meanwhile, tweet us, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Lonnie Coombs. And I'm at Rawa, R A H W A. And then also leave your comments on uh, YouTube. Let us know what you think of the show. And also, if there's any stories or cases that you would like us to cover, please um, leave those comments there also. Otherwise, have a great week, and thank you for joining us. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.